Welcome to Venture Unlocked. I'm your host, Samir Kaji. And in this week's episode, we have the unique pleasure of chatting with Nate Williams, co-founding partner of Union Labs. For those that aren't familiar with the firm, Union Labs employs a unique model of traditional early stage fund investing in deep tech companies, but it also has a studio model where it co-creates them. Before co-founding the firm, Nate spent time at several IoT startups before joining Kleiner Perkins as an EIR in 2017. On the show, Nate gives us his thoughts on the studio model, how it works, why it's so compelling to co-create companies, his approach on fundraising from LPs, and general tips for those thinking about breaking into venture. Now, without any more delay, let's get into this episode to hear all of that and more. Hey, Nate, thanks so much for being on the show. Samir, I'm so happy to be here. And firstly, let me thank you and FRB for being such great partners, specifically yourself and Hannah, Sam, Carolyn, and the rest of the team. I've been a major fan of the podcast. As you know, the entire union team listens to the podcast each week and we talk about it. And so I'm happy to be on today as a guest. Nate, we really appreciate those very kind words. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation, which should be a lot of fun. To start things off, let's get into your journey into venture. Yeah, absolutely. I'll give you the short version. I grew up in New Haven, Connecticut, in a small town called Cheshire, uh, where Dunkin' Donuts is highly prevalent. I went to grad school at UCLA and graduated in 2005, made it up here into the Valley, and my first job was working at Intel. And I worked in a team that actually did uh, product development and strategy work for graphics, gaming, and the connected home. And my first exposure to IoT, where I've spent the past 15 years, and Kleiner Perkins, where I incubated Union, was actually due diligence of a company called iControl. It was backed by John Doerr at Kleiner Perkins and Bruce Sachs from CRV. And that lit the bug for me to actually go deeper in this transition from physical devices to digital representations. I left, became a COO of a company called Four Home in the climate tech space. It was backed by Verizon and acquired by Sanjay Jha at Motorola in 2010. Motorola was acquired by Google for $12.5 billion in 2011. And then I eventually made my way back to being an entrepreneur. Most recently at August, where I was the chief revenue officer and head of Platform PM, August was acquired in 2017. And in the five years previous to the August sale, I had done a bunch of work for Kosla and Matrix and DCM, looking at deals and trying to add value and trying my best as an emerging angel investor to be helpful. And so when August sold, I affiliated with Kleiner Perkins as EIR. So tell us a little bit about the EIR role at Kleiner. First of all, why Kleiner? It sounds like you had some background with John Doerr. What led you down that path versus taking on another operating role? If we think about operating, the aperture of time is really the next year or the next quarter. If you're Elon Musk, you think about 20 years ahead and getting to Mars. But in most cases, you're really thinking about what happens this year, this quarter. And so after 10 years of operating in venture with three exits, I wanted to think about the next 10, 15 years. And the good thing about an EIR is it actually allows you the time, that intermezzo, to think about the future and to actually seek inspiration. Kleiner was the best choice for me. I did have some options of other firms. I wanted the widest dynamic range. I wanted to see things in health tech, 
I wanted to see cybersecurity. I wanted to see early stage deals and later. And so it actually provided that context to look at everything. And EIR is almost like an independent study. So make of it what you come into. And I actually was a nerd. I showed up on the first day alongside Mamoon Hamid on his first day. And I had a spreadsheet of all the industries that I wanted to do deep research in. And so over the next 18 months at Kleiner, I atomized these markets, things like healthcare and industrial internet and transportation, and ended up finding three deals that I sourced to Kleiner that we co-invested with together. In the position in, in Kleiner, and we'll get to Union Labs in a second here, what is it that you actually did? Because you know, I think of EIRs as you know, somebody inside the shop helping to start companies and thinking about their own ideas, but it sounds like you also did some investing and even initiated a small venture studio within Kleiner back in 2019. Walk us through that actual journey and what was it like for him like Kleiner that had gone through so much change? So the first thing, Lo Tony has an amazing post on Quora that talks about the EIR. So it's a really general term. There's generally two or three different flavors. One flavor is the EIR that says, hey, I'm taking a break from running companies. I'm going to start my next one in six months. And I basically want kind of garden leave. I want to see cool things. I want you to tap my brain on stuff that's relevant. And then I'm going to start my next company. Another type of EIR is very focused on, hey, I want to bring deal flow to the platform. And then based on that, I want to either size up my angel investing or I want to start something new. And so my conversation with Kleiner was I had already made 10 plus angel investments and I had this career trajectory where I wanted to transition to venture. I wanted to spend some time understanding the processes of running a major tier one fund, of underwriting these amazing investments where Kleiner had done Amazon and Nest and right, Google, et cetera. And then at the same time, get conviction of where Chris and I wanted to play. And so my day-to-day at Kleiner, I was in the office four to five days a week, basically sitting in on due diligence meetings, helping with portfolio companies, and then also starting to articulate a thesis in TechCrunch and other publications, which became you know, the catalyst for Union. Along the way, you had, I had talked about this in a different conversation. Is like I noticed in the 10 years between being a sidecar to Intel Capital in 2006 and being at Kleiner in 2017, how much venture had changed. It had changed in so many profound ways. I think that's a good segue into Union. You know, you've had a lot of experiences as an operator at different IoT companies. You spent time, as you mentioned, at Kleiner as an EIR, both sourcing and, um, you know, investing in companies. But what was the opportunity you saw that really catalyzed the start of Union Labs? And let's, in a minute, get into the actual structure. But what was your vision itself when you left Kleiner to start Union? It's one of these things where entrepreneurs normally go into an EIR thinking about an industry to disrupt, not going into it thinking about disrupting venture. But I actually had a front seat view of how venture had changing. Some of that was catalyzed by Mamoon coming into Kleiner and really thinking about the next generation of Kleiner Perkins, you know, Kleiner Perkins 3.0. The other catalyst was really around me sourcing three deals. Proxy, which ended up raising Series B from Scale Venture Partners and Kleiner and Kotu, uh, Shuf and Pattern Brands. And so I had this aha moment about six months into the EIR 
where I stepped back and said, oh my God, things have changed so dramatically. So the first thing that I saw was that the size of venture, if I looked 10 years prior, venture had grown an order of magnitude, 10x. So if we think of the rise of mega funds, we not only had T. Rowe, Price, and Fidelity and others come in, we also had Mubadala, SoftBank, Sequoia with $8 billion, NEA, Andreessen. So venture had gotten much bigger. I think the second thing, Samir, that affected Chris and I was, who were the general partners that were writing checks? I come from a traditional comms tech background, but 70 to 80% of my peer group who are late 30s and early 40s GPs are SaaS or social local mobile. They come from Stripe, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera. And so that makes it unbelievably hard for a deep tech deal to actually get through a partnership because it doesn't look like Aviva software or it doesn't look like a traditional SaaS company. I think the third, you had mentioned this previously on your podcast with John from Decibel. The last 15 years has been all around bundling venture, talent partners, HR partners, BD partners, seed to you know, series D. And I fundamentally believe that these you know, very focused specialist players like K9, like Forerunner, we're really, really going to do well. And so we believe that. And the last is we saw this dissonance between deep tech marketing, like things that go to space, autonomous cars, additive printing, and really building venture scale companies in a timeline that matches with a 10-year fund. And so those were some of the things that compelled Chris and I to create Union. We incubated at Kleiner and got off and running basically in the winter of 2019. You know what I think is really interesting, and I agree with the comments of how venture has changed so dramatically over the last decade, has become unbundled and largely is fairly democratized right now on one side of the spectrum. And then, of course, the other side of the spectrum is the mega funds. But as somebody that sits within the smaller fund universe, you know, there's been a lot of managers and differentiation is this real big driver to getting LP money, to telling your story, and you focus on deep tech. I'd also love to hear your perspective on the model itself, because as I understand it, you run both a traditional early stage investment fund, but also pair that with the ability to incubate and start companies and co-create them. We spent a ton of time when I was at Kleiner talking to Chester at Atomic and Peter Pham at Science and Mike Dorsey, Scott Dorsey and the team at High Alpha regarding the Venture Studio concept, which we think is great. If we look in a historical context, co-creating companies is something that has been done by venture capital for the last 30, 40 years. Only in the recent past 10 years, as venture assets under management have swelled over a billion dollars per firm, did it not make as much sense for a GP to spend their time incubating companies as opposed to deploying 15 million per check with 20 or 30 in reserve? And so that was something that we saw changing. And so one of the things that's important about how we structured Union from the jump is we wanted a firm that could build and back amazing companies in a sector that we call applied deep tech. And so we saw, Samir, this bifurcation of even deep tech or frontier tech. There's sort of the types of firms that are really, really focused on PhD stuff coming out of 
Carnegie Mellon, MIT, UW, et cetera, and they want to fund a bunch of technical risk. And then there are some other funds who might do one out of five of their deals in deep tech. So we saw a lane for something we call applied deep tech, which is really a focus on software only or full stack companies that are using these deep technologies like AI, machine learning, IoT robotics, but they're applying it to a real world problem, a real world problem in smart cities or connected transportation or even uh, intelligent homes. And so that's how we thought about the structure. In terms of what Union is, it's a fund that builds and back companies. We basically, out of our fund, we will put around 25% into building companies de novo. So we, our throughput is basically building from scratch, one to two companies per year. And about 75% of our effort is really focused on pre-seed and seed investments, where we deploy between a $500,000 and a $1.5 million check. We've made five investments to date. We've led three of our five deals, and our average ownership has been around 11%. Let's touch on the co-creator studio model for a minute here. I'm hearing much more interest from LPs that are looking to invest in these type of models, and the number grows. There's these sciences juxtapose human ventures, the hive, the fabric, union labs to a certain degree. I know you're more of a hybrid. But tell us in your words, what does it mean to co-create a company and what are the structural advantages of doing so? First is the recent interest in venture studios. Some of that has come from a direct correlation between Palantir, Hims, and Snowflake being effectively incubations and the performance as late stage venture and IPO. So there's a lot of interest in we can build something from scratch and have high ownership. And as you know, as somebody who covers the venture market so specifically, ownership is a very important variable to delivering DPI. You have to focus on ownership. Having 1% isn't enough, especially in the, these markets that we are in. So uh, the venture studio concept is really around co-creating Something interesting that we saw in our research, uh, and it's statistics that are published by the Global Startup Studio Network, is the actual process of a studio that can get a startup from zero to seed or zero to series A. So just some stats. If you are a startup, you know, started out in the wild, the time from starting to series A is somewhere around 56 months as opposed to these startups that are created by the Hive or High Alpha or Science, they're actually getting to Series A milestones in 25 months, so roughly half the time. In terms of time to seed, it's a difference between 36 months for some of these newer built companies versus 10 months from a venture studio. So there's something about this co-creation process. In our mind, we wanted to build a firm that combined some of the best new art of starting companies with the fact that there is a resource constraint. You can't build a portfolio of 20 companies all by yourself. And I'll give you an example. In the case of Proxy that I helped source to Kleiner Perkins, it's in the field of access control. It's basically a cousin to August where Chris and I, Chris was the co-founder CTO of August. I was a CRO. We were thinking about creating a access control company for enterprise. And we were out in China looking at technology to license to build a company. Because we spent so much time looking at 10 to 12 companies, we had an idea of what to build. 
but we actually opened our minds to look at a third-party company. And when we met the proxy team out of Y Combinator, not only was their vision bigger, we felt compelled that their technological background was going to deliver an amazing company. So instead of us building a company, we actually you know, put our swords down, sourced it to Kleiner, put a direct investment in, and now that company obviously was named recently by CNBC, one of the top 50 startups. So for us, we think the right mix is, again, if we look at our fund, we will make 20 investments in fund one, 15 of them will be direct investments, three to five will be incubations. And that allows us to have the ownership bar that we think is important. And it also allows us to see around the corner. Something that you mentioned previously that I think is interesting. We believe in this dislocation that's happening. A stat that we saw that I think is you know, a little controversial is there was 300, 300, not 200, not 100, 300 CVCs formed in the year 2019. Why were these CVCs being formed? One of the reasons was they felt they weren't being serviced by Sand Hill Road. They felt like if we're an auto company, Sand Hill doesn't understand us. If we're a telecommunications company, Sand Hill doesn't understand us. And so we saw this opportunity where there are companies that aren't being seen on Sand Hill Road that can be built, that can turn into very major startups. And all it takes is basically time spent understanding the problem and building the technical solution. That makes total sense. And it's definitely very consistent with what I've heard from some of the folks that I know in the CVC world. Going back to the story itself, and you mentioned part co-create, part traditional investing, and of course, the thesis being centered around these deep tech companies. What I'd love to hear is the fundraise for this. How did you approach this? Because you have a lot of moving parts there. And sometimes LPs have a hard time unpacking that, understanding how it works in practice. What was the strategy from a positioning standpoint? And what did you find really resonated with the early LPs that you spoke to? So what we realized with this specific firm is that we wanted to only make two tweaks on the model. Tweak number one is we wanted to dial up the number of incubations in our first fund. So as opposed to doing, say, like it's a $50 million vehicle with one incubation, we wanted to do three to five. And the second was our aperture for really focusing on creating a category of applied deep tech. We fundamentally feel that there's a lane between the really hardcore science-based PhD funds who are repping deep tech and the generalist funds who may do a deep tech deal every once in a while. So that was the first part. The second part of your question was really around how did we think about the fundraise? I think for Chris and I, we realized that we had already created over the last 20 years of operating a pretty strong network of Fortune 500 companies that supported us and understood what we've done, as well as a variety of family office and GP relationships. So we basically had a three-pronged approach to raising the fund, and we called it kind of the sandwich strategy. We wanted to start with traditional Sandhill GPs and family offices that knew Chris and I and that wanted to back a new firm and platform. And so that was the first part of the sandwich. The second part was we really thought a compelling differentiation for union was an extremely close relationship with strategic, financially driven corporates. So not 
uh, strategic corporates who just want you know deal flow, but corporates who wanted financial return. And so those two things generated our first close, where we had limited partners representing telecommunications, utilities, consumer electronics, and retail come into the fund. And we also had Sand Hill GPs and their family offices representing firms, some of the best performing SaaS funds, obviously Kleiner Perkins and Google Ventures, and several others. And then on the backside, we knew that through that fundamental traction that we were getting, that we could educate the traditional financial institutions. So we've spent time with the endowments and foundations and fund of funds. And so uh, I took a lot of pride in building these relationships. And we were so lucky to have helpers along the way. Shout out to Sacha at Homebrew and Jenny Fielding at Techstars and Brian Jacobs from Emergence and folks like Mike Maples. If we didn't have these folks giving us advice, I think it would have been harder for us to actually reach the milestones that we're in right now. Well, it's always great to have those type of champions and people that are that generous with their advice and connections, which leads me to the next question I have around the fundraise. I had on my first episode, Elizabeth Yen, and Elizabeth mentioned she and Eric talked to, I think, 700 LPs to raise 11 million. It's always a difficult thing to navigate through. And how do you reach all these LPs, which generally speaking, don't hang a shingle and say, we're open for business and this is what we're looking for. What did you and Chris do to meet those people that were second and third degree connections? The first is I thought the story of Hustle Fund was so compelling. And between Elizabeth, what she's blogged about and what she talked about on the podcast, I think that's indicative for most fund managers. Most emerging managers aren't coming out of Sequoia with a deal sheet that's 10 years long. They have a point of view and relevant experience either as an investor or an entrepreneur, but they're facing an uphill battle. And so from our perspective, one of the things that we looked at, both Moonshots Capital and Hustle Fund had both published the statistics of how much outreach they did relative to their fundraise. So Elizabeth had over 700 meetings to get to an $11.5 million raise on Fund One. And then Moonshots Capital down in LA had published that they took over 600 meetings to, I believe, to get to somewhere like 18 million of capital. So our view in terms of building those relationships was, number one, actually do the pre-work to do diligence of these potential LPs of where they're looking to focus. So for example, if an LP wants to have exposure to the deep tech category, we feel like we're a compelling you know, vehicle. We have operator experience that's generated returns for folks like Cowboy and Softech, now on Cork, Mavron and others. We've deployed 15 angel investments prior to Union, and we've also you know, co-invested with Kleiner on a number of deals. And so we started that process of reaching out to the Hall Capitals of the world, the Sendanas, the Trusted Insights, et cetera. And as opposed to making a sales pitch, it was really like, hey, we think the world is going to change in this way. And these are the assumptions that we think are different. You may agree or disagree, but why don't we start the clock running right now so you can see us not only as we build the firm, but also as we build the culture and start to get some entrepreneur NPS. And that's been helpful. One other thing that I would say, you know, at the risk of being controversial is 
I think the entrepreneur market, the entrepreneur has benefited so magically from the transparency over the last 10 years in venture. So if we think of what venture was when I first got into the business, there was a variety of ghosting by VCs. They weren't very clear on feedback, et cetera. And that's changed almost dramatically. VC firms are very aware that they have to be helpful. They have to give good feedback, et cetera. And I can't count the number of medium posts where somebody's talking about a VC that did something wrong. Now, on the LP side, by default, they're not trying to be in the public eye. But that being said, I do believe through Open LP and others, the idea of having a shared set of expectations and communications helps both sides. And so one of the things that I've committed to you and to others after you know, we get fully moving with Union is to actually be a better resource to have that conversation. So where LPs can communicate, this is how many slots that I have. This is how many emerging managers we're going to back in the next year and that you can walk away from that. And so a piece of feedback from another podcast that I really liked from Charles Hudson was like, you have to ask the question, how many emerging managers are you seeking to back in this fund? Because in a lot of cases, most of these people are coming back every two years and they're not only coming back every two years, but they're coming back for bigger funds. And so there may only be one slot or two slots for Centrifuge or one slot for Hall Capital. And so knowing that can allow you to build the relationship over several years. One last story on that. Um, I'm a big friend and fan of Brian Jacobs, the co-founder of Emergence. He's been unbelievably helpful, but he told me recently about an LP relationship Emergence developed at Fund One that didn't come into Emergence 4. So think about that. Emergence, a top decile fund with Viva and Salesforce, Box, and Zoom, even in their case, they had a LP relationship that didn't you know, get fully baked until Fund 4. Before we move on for the fundraise, I have one last question. And every single emerging manager I've talked to that's gone through a raise, and I do a post-mortem with them, and always ask the question, like, what did you actually learn? Was there an aha moment? And it ranges from, you know, I spent too much time talking to the wrong LPs. I positioned my story in a way that was too far complex. Was there anything, you know, as part of your raise, and I know we need to be careful as you're still going through it, but early on, were there things that were aha moments where you said, you know, hey, we need to reposition or we need to approach this raise in a slightly different way? Yeah, for sure. I'll break it down into two parts. Uh, a mistake that we made at Union and then advice for new managers. I'm so focused on giving back to the next generation of managers. I want to make sure we do that. So in terms of mistake, I think we made the mistake of not feeding the funnel. And so Hustle Fund talked about it previously. You're competing between bottom of the funnel conversion and always having new folks to talk to. And so in our first kind of generation, our first quarter or two of fundraising, you know, we were really focused on conversion of these relationships we've built over the past five or 10 years with strategic corporates, with family offices, and some Sandhill GPs. And so we ran those to ground. And what we found was when that happened, we didn't have enough pipeline to actually you know, be busy. And as raising a fund, you want to have at least 50% of your time actually raising the fund. And so that was one of the lessons that sort of hit us in the face. In terms of the aha moment, we felt like the union story 
will continue to get better as we make investments and build companies. And so from that perspective, we recently competed and won a really competitive deal in a manufacturing IoT seed deal where we beat out a very experienced hardware VC firm and also a very well-known founder who had a billion-dollar exit. And so that to us, Charles Hudson had mentioned, you know that you're on the right track before the outside world. This happened about a month and a half ago. That's where Chris and I started to say the work we've done on team building and culture and kind of who we are has started to pay off, that we could meet an entrepreneur you know, within a month period, tell them about union, they can check our backgrounds, and then they take our capital. So that's been super important. Relative to advice for emerging managers, you know, I've got three things that I think are super important. First is there is so much available data out there. So I would really encourage anyone thinking about raising a fund, whether a rolling fund or a straight seed fund, you got to research and read everything. And shout out to OpenLP for just providing so much data. So that's the first thing. You got to do your homework. The second is you got to find your lane. Samir, I think your questions are indicative of venture firms need to define themselves, not by what they do, but what they don't do. So for example, Chris and I don't invest in space. We're not series A investors. We don't invest outside of North America. So it's very clear to define who you are and how that's different. And then the last thing that we really talk about is building the team. I know in our pre-conversation, you had asked about our director of ops, Annie, or others. It's so important to understand, and this is something I learned at Kleiner Perkins. There's a lot of venture that has nothing to do with writing checks. It has to do with dealing with your LPs, doing fund accounting, sitting on board meetings, um, thinking about you know taking secondaries. And so all that type of thing is done in conjunction with great service partners. And so in our case, whether it's Gunderson or Adoro Advisors or Frank Rimmerman, those are areas where we've gotten significant leverage. There's a lot of people listening to the show that are operators or entrepreneurs that are looking to break into venture full-time. And the typical path is either joining an existing firm or spinning up their own firms. And the latter tends to be much more attractive for those that have that entrepreneurial background. You spent a couple years at Kleiner before launching Union Labs. Are there tangible benefits of doing that And are there learnings that you took away from being in a shop like that that really helped you accelerate the path for Union? Yeah, the way that we talk about it is, you know, Union is really a fund 1.5. We are a first-time fund manager, but this isn't the first time we've deployed capital because I co-invested with Kleiner on three deals. And so the experience of sitting at a tier one fund, whether it's Andreessen or Kleiner or Greylock or Sequoia... I think it's so invaluable because you sort of see how the sausage is made. And there's three fundamental areas that I thought were really important. Number one for us and me specifically was understanding entrepreneur NPS. And I would really shout out Mamoon on this. You know, Mamoon came into Kleiner with this really elevated conversation of Kleiner has this 40, 45 year legacy. But the most important thing of Kleiner's future is how entrepreneurs think about Kleiner, think about them for their next startup, and get folks involved. And so this idea of winning deals and dealing with you know, the sourcing process coming down to entrepreneurs, I thought was really important. So that was number one. Two is really 
understanding what it's like to run a tier one firm, like processes from accounting to deal sourcing to portfolio management, LP communications, and just in terms of how to write a memo. So a lot of what we do was inspired by the work that I did at Kleiner with really understanding. I wrote several memos over there. I participated in portfolio reviews. Um, I had this great experience. And so unbelievably helpful and thankful for them. And then the last is, I think this is so important for operators or entrepreneurs turned investors is we call it the other side of the table for the reason, for a reason. I had never seen that other side of the table. And so what happens after the full partner meeting, when you present your company, what do they talk about? And strangely, it's not necessarily about TAM. It's not necessarily about business model. It's about things like, can we trust the entrepreneur in ethical matters? Are they going to build the company in the right way and with the right legal framework? Is it going to be big enough to return the fund? And I thought a question that's really interesting is like, why us? Why would they choose our firm? What specifically about the firm? There's been a lot of discussion in the last week or so about, you know, firm brand and moat. Why us? And so those things have been super helpful. And so it was sort of like me attending kind of a mini Kaufman program or, you know, a mini module. And I'll forever be grateful for them. It's a really interesting thing to think about, you know, spending time at a, what we even talked about earlier, a bundled firm and now being part of that unbundled universe. What we see, and I'm, I'm sure you see it too, a lot of the larger bundled firms are investing at seed. What would you tell you know, emerging managers? Like, What is the structural advantage of being a small firm and competing for those deals versus the large ones? And how do you position yourself? I mean, I think it comes down to specialization and focus. You know, If you're a specialized fintech fund like Ribbit or Propel, your compelling value prop is you spend all your time in fintech and make these extraordinary bets that turn into companies like Guideline or companies like Hippo. In our case, in applied deep tech, we're spending 100% of our time on seed stage North American deep tech companies. So we don't have a growth fund. We're not doing anything other than first check-in, leading 50% of our deals, and rolling up our sleeves and either helping with a go-to-market issue or with Chris's deep technical background, helping with product development. And so we think that focused pitch is really helpful for entrepreneurs. And at the risk of being controversial, one of the things that I ended up seeing and feeling about you know, bigger firms is the fact that because you have a talent partner, a marketing partner, an HR partner, right, a BD partner, that actually takes some of the learning away from the general partner. And if we look back, say, when Genentech was built with Kleiner and Sequoia, those two GPs, Valentine and Byers, actually did biz dev, they did product dev, they did IP licensing, et cetera. And so we like to think at the heart of Union, we are rolling up our sleeves and solving a unique set of issues for the entrepreneurs. And the other thing which separates deep tech from SaaS is all the problems are different. They're heterogeneous problems. It's not the same thing about getting to 1 million of ARR. It's about, should they go and pitch Comcast or Verizon? Should they think about going into the Apple stores? What's the best way to source hardware in China? And so I think that's important. And I know that you've got uh, some questions around deep tech as an asset class and returns. And so happy to talk about that as well. It's an area where we have seen much more investment and firms like Lux focus on it. But from what I've heard, both on the LP and GP and entrepreneur side is it's one that 
The companies take a while to really get to commercial fit. Usually takes a lot of money, or at least that's the perception. Having that as a thesis for a really small, let's say some hundred million dollar fund, how does that actually work? And how did you get comfortable that you can be viable as a fund investing in these type of companies that could be capital intensive at the end of the day? There's two important caveats. First is that deep tech investing doesn't necessarily mean hardware. If we look at our portfolio and our first five investments, three out of the five are software only. So deep tech or hard tech actually means that there's this combination of physical hardware and software that creates a full stack solution, but it doesn't mean you have to invest in the hardware part of that. Second is, if we think back to the start of Enterprise Cloud, I love hearing this from Emergence. When they pitched their first LPs, Enterprise Cloud actually wasn't a thesis that most understood. You know, people were investing in enterprise software. There were people talking about, you know, communications network and semiconductors, but there wasn't this defined thesis. If we think Enterprise Cloud, that's produced some of the best fund returns with Box and Viva and Dropbox, et cetera. So I think we're at the start of this newer uh, set of returns coming from firms like Lux and Founders Fund and Kosla and Kleiner because of that. Just in terms of some of the biggest outcomes that we've seen in venture recently, Oris Health to Johnson & Johnson for $3.4 billion. That's the largest private acquisition of a venture-funded company to date, so a massive outcome. But even with, within Kleiner, Nest was $3.2 billion to Google, Ring was over a billion dollars. But I'm more focused on the software companies that are informed by deep tech. So think, for example, the recent IPO of Lemonade, where that was a, you know, a company in insure tech that is informed by what's happening in the physical world. And so we're, and also the C3 IoT IPO that's happening right now. So we'll make a bunch of investments where software comes together with the physical world to solve a problem. And I think we're going to see the type of returns that can compel funds like Union to really be in the conversation for the next 10, 20 years of the type of firms where LPs will be happy to partner with us. Let's move to the final segment, which is our heat check round, where I'll go through a few questions, rapid fire, starting off with your biggest career mistake and what you learned from it. The lesson learned is basically opportunity finds you when it's ready, not when you're ready. So I had an opportunity after Motorola was acquired by Google to join Nest. I had a meeting with Tony Fidel and Matt Rogers, the founders, and Eric Charlton. I was building the relationship for a year later. My wife and I had our first kid. I was resting, investing at Google. I wanted to give back and build the relationship. Tony, who worked for Steve Jobs, looked at me right in the face five minutes into the conversation. He's like, do you want a job or what? And I basically was not ready to make the jump. And you know, wasn't ready to go through that door. Subsequently, obviously, August was successful in hardware, but not at the level of Nest. And what that really catalyzed in my mind is you have to be ready when opportunity strikes. So for example, we wouldn't have started the Kleiner EIR unless we wanted to actually start a venture fund. Um, we wouldn't have done that. We wouldn't talk to LPs unless we're ready to raise. This next question, I know it's still early and you probably haven't had enough time to create a really impressive anti-portfolio, but what would you consider your biggest investment miss? Well, I can give you a, a tongue-in-cheek answer, which is I'm very close with Santi from Emergence, and one of my mentors is Dan Scheinman, 
who was one of the first checks in at Zoom. And so I would say they've been telling me for years prior to the IPO to get involved with Zoom, and I completely missed that move. That is an actual example of where I just didn't move fast enough, and Zoom in the time of COVID has been an unbelievable flyer. Final question, and this may be a hard one for you because you've been exposed to so many great people. Name the investor, and it doesn't have to necessarily be venture capital, that you respect the most, that you feel has taught you the most about being a great investor, and tell us why. I had the pleasure in 2008 and 2007 to get to know Mike Maples and Manu Kumar uh, as they started K9 and Floodgate, respectively. And so on the top of my list is Mike Maples. Uh, even though we speak you know, several times a year, I just think he's somebody that's built a really uh, 100% authentic firm. Similar to me, he partnered with a deeply technical co-founder in Ann who came from a family of folks that worked at NASA, Stanford PhD. Mike's a giver, and he's 100% authentic. And I think he's shown the dynamic range in Floodgate that's been amazing. The second person I wanted to name, too, is I just am a huge Mary Meeker fan. And I think that's something that could really be held as exemplar of somebody who's just been such an amazing investor. So first is because of her amazing whip sharp insights. I've just seen that the go-to platform, Internet Trends has been around since 1995. And it's just been an unbelievable. I actually saw from afar how very successful startups were positioning to be part of internet trends, knowing that it was the source for what's new and what's next. And lastly, around Mary is, you know, she has been in the business since the mid 80s, been in venture since roughly 2010. I look to that as longevity. I really love what I do. I don't feel like I'm working. I have no desire to ever retire. And I just love the idea of longevity in this business where you can transition from running a fund to actually being a helpful person. And so whether it's Mary or Brooke Byers, seeing folks continue to mentor the next generations is super important for us. And that's something that I take really serious as the managing partner here at Union is to build a bench that can help take over the firm and hopefully establish Union as a you know, 30, 40 year fund, just like Kleiner Perkins. Yeah, it's fantastic. And those two in particular are incredible mentors. And it's hard to believe Mike has not been a venture capitalist for more than about 13 years now. So Nate, thanks so much again for being on the show. This was a lot of fun. It was my pleasure. And again, thanks for all the things that FRB does to support not only entrepreneurs, but emerging managers. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. To learn more about Nate Williams, Union Labs, and insights into fundraising, deep tech, or studio models, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you'll find detailed notes on the show. While you're there, please leave us a rating and a review. It really, really helps us out. And hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released. 